you go. We're going to continue on in our study. Actually, we're going to conclude our study of Proverbs chapter 6. And uh, really, this, this final section, it really helps to allow us to kind of in parallel or, or sort of simultaneously begin a bit of a, a new approach uh, to our study, namely that we're going to move into more uh, of a the- thematic study of, of the rest of the book of Proverbs. Um, what, what obviously is characteristic of the book of Proverbs is, is a lot of themes and ideas and instruction and counsel and wisdom. It repeats itself in various forms and in various uh, poetic ways. Um, and so what we don't want to do is we don't want to continue to do you know, verse by verse and repeat almost the exact same things over and over again. And I do think that one of the better um, books that I've, I've been using does break um, the study of Proverbs down into subjects or categories and really provides a good uh, compilation of, of the teaching of Proverbs so that you can kind of think about the instruction under the umbrella of a, of a broad category of, of, of wisdom for living of the application of God's truth to life. So in this actual section, uh, we're still kind of continuing on with the, the way that we've approached this chapter um, in looking at profiles and foolish pride, but really it's, uh, it's, it's, it's illuminating or bringing to light another category that's a pretty big category um, in the study of Proverbs as well. So it kind of simultaneously introduces us to this new approach to our study that we'll enter into as we, as we move forward. Uh, just to remind you guys of what we've been doing, we've been looking at uh, Proverbs chapter 6, and we've been basically identifying these different profiles in foolish pride. And we looked at this first uh, profile in verses 1 to 5, which I just basically uh, entitled Impulsive Pride of Imprudent Financial Dealings. And it's this whole subject of uh, offering up surety or putting up security for your neighbor, as, as it says in verse 1. And the issue of pride there becomes more apparent, uh, both implicitly and explicitly. Implicitly, by the fact that you know the motivation for doing this could be to demonstrate a, a, a level of you know um, sort of bravado, financial bravado, um, and trying to give the impression that you're able to just, without really much thought, put your name on the line for someone else's financial obligations. It could be motivated by uh, a sense of uh, wanting to get credit for something when you really aren't doing anything unless the deal goes bad, because putting up surety doesn't require you to invest any money or put any real skin in the game other than your name, which can be a big deal. If, if it all goes bad, you become liable, but it could be motivated by wanting to get praise or you know, acclamation or you know, someone to think well of you for, for what is really, in a financial transaction standpoint, uh, not much uh, put on the table other than your name, which is obviously at the end would be a lot if the deal went bad. But really, from the text itself, you see this in the fact that um, there's this call to, uh, you know, if you, it says in verse 2, if you are snared in the words of your mouth or you're caught in the words of your mouth, there's a, there's an, uh, an, a foolish, prideful impulsivity in stepping into this arrangement. And then the exhortation to correct this problem in verse 3 is basically humiliate yourself and go and grovel to the person that you put up surety uh, on behalf of or the, the, the debtor, that you, the lender that you put up surety for or with and beg them to let you out of the deal. So there's this element of the, the remedy for this 
this issue is humiliating, a humiliating track. It's for you to humble yourself and go and put yourself on the line before this lender and say, please let me out of this arrangement. So again, this, this foolish pride that's really an imprudent um, or an impulsive pride in entering into some type of imprudent financial arrangement. And then the second thing we looked at was this presumptuous pride of laziness and procrastination. And again, you have this, this identification of the sluggard, the, the lazy person, the slothful person, uh, humiliating counsel to go and learn from the ant, the smallest of creatures, um, and to be taught by this, this ant. Um, and really the, the, presumptu- the presumptuous pride of a sluggard thinking that you know, everything's just going to work out. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, everything's going to be fine. I've got time. I don't have to get to my work now. It's just this idea of presuming upon circumstances, presuming upon how much time you have for something to work out or for you to get your obligations taken care of. And so there's a pride involved in that kind of sloth and laziness. Then we looked at the malicious pride of deception and discord, and this really is a major focus toward the middle part of the chapter, and it identifies this person who's continually sowing discord, um, this profile of, of a person who manifests malicious pride and deception. Um, we looked at who this person was. They're, they're really, the identification in Proverbs, it's, it's, equiv- it's a equivalent to uh, just demonic type of, of um, motivation. The, the, the level of maliciousness and the way that that is uh, carried out and sowing discord among brothers is, is of a deceptive and malicious and wicked type that it's even compared to Belial, who ultimately, even in the New Testament, is equated with Satan himself. So it's just really a, a form of wickedness and pride and manifestation of pride that is of a real diabolical nature. And we talked a lot about having discernment and recognizing that these kinds of these kinds of manifestations of pride, especially the ones that are manifested by those who are really crafty. Again, we identify this person as being very, very sophisticated, very crafty in what they do. It's not always easy to recognize, and there's a call for those who are God's people to be very discerning, to be very aware and mindful and clear-minded about what's really going on, to really learn to test matters well against the truth, and and to be very faithful in that. Well, then we turn the corner now to what we're going to focus on today, and it's this, it's the way I've kind of identified it, is a destructive pride of illicit relationships and infidelity. And this is focused on in the 20, uh, verse 20 to 35, the last part of this chapter. And, and really it's the kind of pride that is oriented towards manifested in illicit, um, illicit interaction, illicit relationship. Really the whole issue of infidelity or adultery is brought to the table. And it's really not the first time um, we are introduced to the forbidden woman in chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. So again, thinking thematically about the book of Proverbs, this is, this is a pretty significant theme. We'll look at how significant it is here in just a minute. But, but we've seen it already in brief in three verses in chapter 2, verses 16 to 19. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. This is sort of giving one of the benefits of having a high value of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 2 and treasuring it, seeing it as treasure to be pursued, and, and just putting a, placing a premium on the, the uh, pursuit of and acquisition of wisdom and insight. And then this provides a description of one of the safeguards 
for wisdom, so you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So a really dark picture of this, this adulterous woman, this woman that would lure you into illicit relationship. So that's the first introduction we have in Proverbs, but it doesn't end there because all of chapter 5 focuses on uh, this type of folly, this type of adulterous infidelity, this illicit relationship with this, this forbidden woman. There are a few verses, verses 15 to 19, that provide a little bit of an encouragement, a little bit of a bright light in the midst of that chapter where it talks about the beauty and purity of marital intimacy. And that's, that's the stark contrast to this illicit type of relationship that's described in, in Proverbs chapter 5. And then here again, at the end of chapter 6, another big focus on this whole matter of, of adultery, of illicit relationship. And then the whole of chapter 7 focuses on it as well. So it's a big deal. There's a lot of real estate, a lot of scriptural real estate in the first several chapters of Proverbs, and in particular, this section of a father's instruction to his son, which is the first nine chapters of Proverbs, you see this, chapter 2, all of chapter 5, the, a big chunk of the end of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. It's about this whole matter of illicit relationship and, and adultery. So I want to put the question out to you guys for some feedback to kind of continue to prime our thinking on this. Uh, why do you think there is such a pervasive emphasis on this in this section of parental instruction? Such a pervasive problem. Such a pervasive problem? Okay. I think it was really a problem for Solomon. A problem for Solomon, no doubt. Uh, no doubt when you have that many wives and concubines and, and even David. So Solomon's a product of this whole uh, issue, this whole matter of adultery, right? So so a lot of things we could look at that would say that's, that's good history there to indicate why it's such a big deal, it's such a problem. We have to believe that Solomon was um, intimately familiar with the downsides of this, um, another possibility. We also know that Solomon was granted wisdom of a unique type, right? He, he asked for wisdom to lead and guide God's people. And so God blessed him with that in a unique kind of way. And so it stands to reason that, that there's, there's insight here that uh, in addition to the practical experience and to the practical wisdom that would come from seeing a lot, living through a lot, seeing the pain and suffering that certain actions or decisions would yield uh, and wanting to guard and caution the next generation against those same kinds of errors and mistakes and protect them from that. But I want to take us uh, to a little more a deeper look at this for a second, for us to think about this from a, in a little more, I guess, profound or, or deep kind of way. When you look at Genesis chapter 2 and the creation of marriage, and then the subsequent fall, I think we see something there that needs to really inform our thinking on this matter in a significant way. When you look at Genesis chapter 2, um, you see there in verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a found helper fit for him. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep 
to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this caps off with this, this image of the purity of physical intimacy, of complete being completely laid bare in a pure sense, this reference to both being naked and unashamed. And of course, what do we know happens in the fall, right? You get to Genesis chapter 3, and you have that whole account there of, of the serpent's um, conversation with Eve that led to the partaking of the forbidden fruit, which then led to Adam partaking of the fruit from Eve very willingly. And then it says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then when God comes to confront them, basically, they immediately say, we were naked, and so we were afraid. And there was shame that was involved in their nakedness. And, of course, he begins to probe, how did you know you were naked? And thus the story goes and leads us into the curse. And what I think we need to understand and what I think we can attest to and what I think we can observe throughout the annals of history, throughout the biblical record, is that this whole area of the perversion of physical intimacy in the fall describes what is a core driving force in our sin nature. It's one of those core driving forces in the fallen nature of man. It's pervasive, and it's at the very core of our, our corruption, our sinful nature. And, and the devastating effect of all forms of this illicit sensuality on the generations of mankind cannot be overstated. Kingdoms have fallen, right? Wars have ensued. Countless lives have been basically sacrificed on the battlefield over this very carnal drive in man. You can look throughout time immemorial and see it play out over and over and over again. And yet, when you look at these descriptions in Proverbs and elsewhere, and when you just step back and you think about it, just from a purely objective, observational point of view, the absolute plain on the face of it, utter folly of it, could not be more clear. And that's what Proverbs does over and over and over again. This, he says, is not complicated. This is not difficult to see and understand how devastating and deadly this is. What is at challenge, though, is that it is such a core driving carnal force within man, you must be warned, you must be reminded, you must safeguard, you must think about the consequences over and over and over again. So there's this, this repeating of this theme consistently. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, a lot of the same kinds of descriptions and ideas you see there presented over and over and over again. So there is... There is something about this 
that represents such a unique form of temptation that we must be warned over and over and over again and must recognize that it is a, it is a, a fool's fantasy that ends in just devastation and death and destruction. That's the picture that we see over and over and over again in these passages. Well, let's read um, these verses in Proverbs chapter 6 and kind of work our way through it. He says, My son, keep your father's commandment and and forsake not your mother's teaching. Again, another example of him bringing both father and mother together in this instruction, which is unique. A lot of the injunctions, it's just the father's instruction is being referenced. But there's a couple of times where the mother's teaching is also there to reinforce the importance of it. This is coming from both angles. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Verse 21, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does, who, he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will be wiped away. Excuse me, will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So in this section, we see a few things that I want to kind of highlight. I'm not going to touch on every bit of it, because a lot of it is repeat from chapter 5. I mean, the, the, the word, the alluring words, and the flashing eyelashes... It just paints this picture of this is a kind of temptation that the, the most simplest um, uh, thing like verbal and nonverbal communication can lure you into a trap. And it gives you that image here and as well as in the other, other passages in Proverbs that deal with this whole matter. But the first thing I think that is really key for us to be reminded of is in verses 20 to 24. And it's just this principle that safeguarding wisdom will safeguard you. In other words, guarding yourself with wisdom or seeing wisdom as something to be safeguarded in your heart and in your mind, putting putting protection around wisdom as a practice and a principle and a spiritual discipline leads to the guarding of you. My son, he says in verse 20, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart. Tie them around your neck. There's this Implication of protection, keeping it close to you, as close as physically possible. These principles of wisdom, these commandments that you've been given. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. Again, another indication of its protective work. 
wisdom's protective work. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching the light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. And listen to this, verse 24, to preserve you from the evil woman, to protect, to guard you, to safeguard you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. In other words, the point here is that constant, proactive measures that we take, and again, proactive measures that we take to store up wisdom, to think about the teaching and the commandments that we've received, the wise counsel that's been provided to us from Scripture and from godly people who are bringing Scripture to us, from parents and from pastors and and from friends and counselors in our lives, to keep them before us and to protect them, to hold them dear and hold them close, like they are treasure, like it says in Proverbs chapter 2. This provides a, a, a form of protection. It provides, it provides these guardrails, these vivid signposts and these guardrails in our lives that sort of stand out there in front of us. And we can see them, and we can know in the same way that as we're on a freeway or something, if I veer too far this way or that way, I'm going to hit this rail. I can see it. I can see the roadway clearly. It provides this protection and, 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 and the preserving influences that keep us from folly and from humiliation and really from ultimate destruction. That's the point, that, that wisdom, to the extent that we engage in harboring it, safeguarding it, holding tightly to it, binding it to us, it then becomes a safeguard for us. It becomes a protector of us. And in this particular context, it preserves you from the evil woman, he says. Now think about this in the context of teaching young people, which is really the context of this section. What is the common tendency of young people when they are instructed, counseled, directed, when they're challenged, when they're confronted by parents or by those in authority over them with truth or from their own experience, from their own experience of maybe making bad decisions and saying, I wouldn't want you to go the same way I went. What is a, what is a common response to that among youth? A knee-jerk reaction to push back against it. There's a knee-jerk reaction to push back, isn't there? In other words, there's this, there's this tendency to question Question everything. And so, if someone is bringing something to you in the way of directive, this is what you need to know and understand for your life. This is what's best for you. This teaching, this instruction, this counsel will safeguard your future. I mean, these kinds of big, life-changing kinds of concepts, young people's inclination is to go, eh, we'll see. I don't know. Maybe. Yes. That's right. That's right. It's not unique to young people. Absolutely. No question about it. But there's this idea that, you know what, we, we, start, to, we start to see these things and we start to think about, well, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll, I'll see. I'll, I'll determine that for myself. And Solomon is saying, don't do that. There's a, there's a huge caution here. You need to guard and safeguard and hold tightly to these things. Don't reject it in any way and don't let loose of it. Yes, sir. I think tonight is sort of, uh, quite well, he says, 
you throwing down Sinatra. That's right. That's right. That's right. I agree. And so that's the tendency. The tendency for us is to, even though we are receiving what is wisdom and the teaching of Scripture, the commandment, the law, the, the loving counsel from those who have walked a path and maybe paid consequences for bad decisions, whatever it might be, that we need to be guarded against our tendency to say, I'll, I'll, I'll see for myself, I'll check it out. There needs to be a, not only a receptivity to wisdom, but in the receiving of it, we hold on to it, we recount it, we think about it, we meditate upon it, we, we seek to walk in it daily. Why? Again, the allurement particularly in this area, and if you look at the way it's described here, it comes upon you and it, it becomes a trap, a sudden trap. In other words, passivity in this regard is almost a sure um, outcome of, of folly and failure. If you're just passive about these things, if you're just sort of casually meandering through life and saying, I'll be okay, I should be okay, that's, that's deadly. Yeah, of course. It comes so subtly, we're not really, we're not looking for the guy in a red suit and horns. That's right. He just comes very subtly like an angel of light. That's right. The deception is, we need to recognize it's going to be incredibly compelling, very convincing. At the risk of sounding like an old-fashioned prude, which I suppose I am. I don't think that could ever happen. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, they're just asking for it. And then if a man comes on, hits on them too aggressively, they complain. I think, what did you expect? Yeah. I read quite a bit on, on just, just sort of the, the sexualization of a culture and how, um, you know, we, we, particularly in our day and time where we're just access to, to media of all sorts is just pervasive. And in many cases, because of a complete, uh, breakdown in discernment and wisdom in homes and families. I can't tell you, and I, I, I regrettably acknowledge this, but, um, you know, working in, in an educational environment, it, it's pretty staggering. When I say an educational environment, I mean a Christian school, a Christian educational environment. It's pretty staggering when you discover how little parents know about what their kids are watching, are accessing, um, there's just a level of, I'm not sure how to describe it, from, I mean, it, it probably varies what's really going on there from person to person or parent to parent, home to home, but what, what we see every single year are examples. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be cynical, and I don't want to say that we're going to see it again this year, but if trends are indicators of future events, what I anticipate seeing again this year is another example or two or three where there is access to or promotion of illicit material of some kind and there is a level of, of passivity at, 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 on one hand or sort of almost a you know, head in the sand just not wanting to deal with the possibility of it on the other hand among parents sometimes. So the fact is, is that we live in a day and time where accessibility is, and 
the sort of the normal cultural norms that would say, well, this is really not appropriate for public viewing. Those, those standards have so diminished that young people are now just driving down the freeway or just, you know, various TV shows. I mean, you start thinking about TV shows and whatnot and the ratings um, of these TV shows. I mean, you can't really trust the ratings anymore. I mean, you know, you, if, you have, if you have some type of um, service, whether it's satellite or cable or whatever, and you set up these parental controls based upon, a, you know, the rating that they have, you can't necessarily trust that their rating is going to prevent some type of provocative or illicit or suggestive material to still be seen because the standards have been so lowered. So we live in a day and time where, where the, 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 the culture itself and the, and the, and the oxygen that we breathe in, in the world that we live in is putting this in front of us relentlessly. And then you couple that with what is part of our fallen nature. It's a core issue. Um, you can see how the warnings need to be aggressive and how the, the vigilance of safeguarding wisdom is all the more important. I mean, we've already seen in earlier chapters, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean out on your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So there's this safeguard that wisdom becomes for us as we diligently safeguard wisdom in our hearts and our minds. Well, next little point I would, I would make from this section is that adultery, speaking of the heart, adultery begins in the heart. Verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Her eyelashes are not the core problem, right? <laughs> her, her, her tongue dripping with honey, her speech, her, her seductive speech, that's not the core problem. Adultery begins in the heart of man. And Jesus said it most clearly and, and profoundly in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the Proverbs makes this very point. It begins in the heart. So the principle of safeguarding wisdom, of hiding God's word in our hearts, of repeating truths to ourselves over and over again, of memorizing it, of sitting under teaching, the kind of teaching that you may have heard before, it's all part of this safeguarding process because our hearts can be so easily led astray. And if our hearts are led astray, then according to Christ himself, we're already as guilty as actually performing some illicit act, but the tendency to actually consummate that act when our hearts have already been bent in that, that direction is palpable, almost irresistible at that point. It begins in the heart. You know, interestingly, when you think about the way that this is described, the way this, sort of the wiles of this, this woman. And again, this cuts both ways. Uh, this is not just, we don't just have problems with women luring men into adulterous relationships. It cuts both ways. In fact, statistically, I believe, and I, you know, if I, please forgive me if I'm not getting this exactly right, but I believe I read that 
The statistics are very close. I want to say within a matter of like three, three or so percentage points between men and women now. It's not, it's not as pervasively a male problem as it, as it once was statistically. But the bottom line is, is that there is this allurement that takes place that is on the outside of the heart, and it's what, it's what not guarding your heart makes you vulnerable to. And Bruce Walke says this way, her tongue threatens to cut apart the very fabric of the godly home at the seam where the generations are sewn together. Think about that. This, this woman in this passage, through the seductive verbal compulsion, the verbal uh, use of her words to allure a, a young man, it's not just drawing someone into an, an illicit, momentary engagement. I like what Walke says. Her tongue threatens to cut apart the very fabric of the godly home at the seam where generations are sewn together. I read, no, I read several articles on the effects of adultery and, and ultimate... Uh, implications both in the home and then ultimately with divorce that often ensues as a result of this on children. And it is devastating. I mean, obviously it goes without saying, but it is devastating. So this idea of the effect of this on generations and the utter folly of this, that, that the flashing of eyelashes, that some alluring words would compel someone to cast, to, do, to make a decision that could have effect on future generations for a moment in time. That's the way that this, this whole issue is sort of put up to us in stark contrast between folly and wisdom, between the destructiveness of this and between holding tight and holding fast to wisdom. He speaks of her beauty here and, and points out the folly of seeing it as true beauty. He says, Walke says, only when accompanied by prudence or the fear of God, does beauty represent the biblical feminine ideal? So again, if we are not thinking biblically, if we are not safeguarding our hearts and our minds with the truth of Scripture, then what is on the surface an apparent beauty, we won't have the discernment to know that is a lie. That's not real. That true beauty, genuine beauty, is one that's accompanied by prudence and the fear of God. That's beauty from Scripture. That's the biblical feminine ideal. The son must be on his guard against both verbal and nonverbal means of seduction. But sin, as I said, adultery starts in the heart. Sin starts in lust and in the imagination. It's like James 1, 1 14 to 16 talks about. In other words, we cannot say, well, you know, if she wouldn't have looked so pretty, you know, if, if he wouldn't have spent so much time listening to my problems, you know, he really listens to me. I read this whole article, and it's written by a lady who was actually in the midst of an affair. She loved her husband. She had a daughter and loved her daughter, and this was just this complete... Um, explanation of the, of the travail and turmoil personally that she was going through by allowing her heart to be torn away. So 
she's, she's describing herself as someone who really can't control her feelings and her emotions and how she feels about this other person, but she still loves her husband and she still loves her daughter, and yet she's finding herself treating her husband and her daughter in ways that are completely driven by the guilt and shame that she feels because of this other relationship. I mean, this on and on and on it goes of this total devastation that she's experiencing as a result of this, and yet still, even still, placing value on this illicit relationship because it makes her feel special. It is a devastating and deadly seduction that we're talking about here. And it exposes, the next point, adultery exposes foolish and destructive pride. Look at verse 27 and 28. This is where I think the pride issue becomes most vivid in the, in the text. Verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? There's a hubris there, right? There's a sense of like, I, I, I can handle this. this I, I, can, I can carry this flame right next to me and I, I can handle it in such a way that I will not suffer the consequences of a fatal burn. There's an arrogance there about this. I, I, can, I can dance around this relationship and I will not get hurt by it. It is the, the exposure of this foolish pride here. It's also senseless and stupid. Look at verse 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. I don't know if any of you have, have walked through these kinds of matters in your life or in the life of family or friends or whatever, but I can attest to this. It, it produces a level of stupidity, and I don't mean to be crass. This is literally without a brain is the terminology, the senselessness. It's just, it's just this category of operating normally in one setting and being completely mindless in your decision-making in another. There is a lack of sense. There's a stupidity. There is a, just an absolute craziness that, that ensues as a result of this, where people talk themselves into perpetuating relationships while they are watching their own lives and the lives of others around them that they claim they care for, they care for disintegrate before them. It is a, a level of senselessness, of mindlessness that is utterly profound and devastating. And then adultery brings relentless wrath and ruin. Verses 35, 33 to 35. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy, here's where the, the violated husband comes into play. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. So in other words, the picture here is all your efforts to try and make amends or shore up the damage that's been done or to relieve some of the relentless nature of the consequences of this will not help. There will be an ongoing consequence that is suffered here. They're devastating and they're ongoing. And I, once again, can attest to that. 
and my own family and experience. Years and years and years and years and years subsequent to some of these events, there is devastating consequence that's just ongoing. It's relentless. And God knows that. God, God knows that. The writer of Proverbs understands that. In fact, to get a real vivid image of that, since we're not going to probably spend any time really looking at Proverbs chapter 7 because it's, it's really a lot of repeating the same kinds of ideas. But if you look at Proverbs chapter 7 and starting in verse 21, with seductive speech she persuades him, with her smooth talk she compels him, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. So we're talking about a, a violent image here, an ox to the slaughter, a stag being caught till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. That's the relentless wrath. That's, that's the ongoing pain that is associated with this kind of illicit pride that leads to this kind of relationship, this kind of folly and sin of adultery. And of course, when you bring this into the context of the effect it has on succeeding generations, you can only see that it is devastating. If you just think for a moment how societies are formed, how cultures develop, at the very foundation of any society or culture is some version, some framework of family life, right? Some context of human formation around, you know, typically family life of some kind. And think about how, going back to, to the beginning until now, how much devastation has occurred and has affected the very foundations of society and has influenced succeeding generations and how they make decisions and think about these kinds of matters, all because of this kind of folly, of walking into an illicit relationship knowing it is wrong, knowing it has devastating consequences, but basically being so driven by carnal, core, fleshly desires and losing your mind in the process. We walk into these kinds of sins and wreak havoc on society, basically. That's the picture that we're given in Proverbs of this folly and this sin of adultery. Well, I don't know if you have any final thoughts. It's a pretty dark <laughs> picture. I'm not sure how to make it look better other than to say, God, help us be faithful people, right? Every day, God, help us to safeguard wisdom, to walk in wisdom, and to remain faithful, recognizing that it is his benediction that is on faithfulness to him and to his word.